Good morning. Welcome. So glad you're here. For those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is John, and I'm the pastor here. And we are doing a series, as my wife mentioned earlier when she did the host comments, we're doing a series called Living Free. And we're trying to understand what, what this third part of our mission statement means and particularly how we apply it. Because when we go through our mission statement, know God, find hope, live free, and do good. Uh, know God, find hope, and do good. Make a whole lot of sense to everyone, and we can pretty much figure out how to do those things. Pretty self-explanatory. But living free is the one that always kind of catches people. And they want to know, what does this actually mean for us? What does it mean to live free? What are the implications of that? How do I actually do it? What do I need to be thinking, and what do I need to be doing? And I do think this is probably the one part of our mission statement that might make us different than some other churches that are out there who either wouldn't believe this or wouldn't talk about it. I uh, wouldn't talk about it often. And so we try to talk about it a lot because it's uh, key to us understanding how to honor and please God. So we're going to talk about living free today. And last week we talked about being free from death. All right, that was our Easter message. It was pretty simple, pretty straightforward and to the point, okay? Free from death. Today we're going to talk about being free from religion. That's right, free from religion which might catch some people off guard because they'd be like, well, wait a second, isn't Christianity a religion? <laughs> well, my answer to that is yes and no. Because it is, by the definition of a religion, if you look it up, it is a religion. All right, I looked up the religion in the Webster's Dictionary, and it turns out the definition of religion at Webster's Dictionary isn't very helpful because it just keeps using the word religious, in the definition. I'm like, that's not helpful at all. All we're doing is using this word to define this word. That's the practice of religious practices by religious people. Like, that's basically what it says. I'm like, well, that's not helpful at all. So I went to the next greatest dictionary on earth, Wikipedia, okay? And so this is how Wikipedia defines, uh, this is how Wikipedia defines religion. And it's a little wordy, but it'll get us in the ballpark, okay? Wikipedia says, religion is a social cultural system of designated behaviors and practices, morals, worldviews, texts, sanctified places, prophecies, ethics, or organizations that relates humanity to supernatural, transcendental, or spiritual elements, which is wordy and really broad, <laughs> okay? So basically, it's like any system of belief or texts or anything that allows people to relate to God or some form of God, right? So I would say, okay, by that definition of religion, is Christianity a religion? Yes, okay, because we have a system, we have texts, we have all of this stuff that shows us how to relate to God. So yes, by that definition, it's, it is a religion. But I don't think that, the, that most people or the average person actually thinks of religion that way. I think most people, when you say this is a religion, what we think of is a system, you know, here the definition said a system of designated behaviors and practices. Usually, when I think religion, maybe you too, I think most people, they think of a system of rules and regulations that you have to follow in order to get into heaven or to reach enlightenment or nirvana or whatever, which not the band. You, it's, that's a, it's a religious thing, right? So uh, it's, it's a system by which you earn your way to something else. That's how most people think of religion. Now, by that sort of functional definition of religion, is Christianity a religion? No. No, it's not. That is not the way Christianity works. 
And I, would, I hope that most of you in the room already know this, but there may be some of you that, that haven't heard this yet. You've maybe operated under the understanding for many, many years that Christianity is a set of rules. And you keep the rules and you go to heaven, don't keep the rules and you don't. Like, like, it, like God has a chalkboard with your name on it, okay? If you remember chalkboards, anybody remember chalkboards? Like actual chalkboards, right? Dumb boards, I might call them. You know, they have smart boards now. But like the chalkboards where, you know, you have a piece of chalk and they put your name at the top. And, and every time you do something good, God writes a little tally on there with the chalk. And every time you do something bad, he takes his eraser and he takes that off the board. And as long as you got chalk on the board at the end of your life, then you're good and you're going to heaven. And anybody that doesn't have any chalk on the board, they're going to hell. That's what most people think Christianity is. And that couldn't be further from the truth. That's not what it is. Christianity is fundamentally different than that. It works differently. And now to explain this and so that we understand the roots and the foundation, even if you already know this and you're a believer, it's important that we understand the why behind the what. Not just that it's true, but why the, the, what we believe is true. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And to start off, I want to do a little bit of uh, a little history. Any history nerds in the room? Raise your hand if you're a history nerd for me. Ooh, I am, I am in sparse company today. I see you, friends. I see you, friends. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do I, like the quickest flyover of the Old Testament you've ever heard in your entire life, okay? And I will, I'll, keep it, I'll keep it as broad as I can, all right, and admittedly oversimplified for all of you in the room that, that are not history nerds or buffs who want all the details like I do, okay? So God created the world. Is that a, is that a, that's a broad enough start? All right, you still tracking with me? Still tracking? All right, so God creates the world. He creates humanity. He creates humanity because he wants to have a relationship with us, a close, personal relationship with us where he is our God and we are his people. But the problem is that people wanted to be him, thought they could be him. And so people sinned, and now all of us, because of that, our relationship with God, where we're supposed to be his people and he's supposed to be our God, that relationship is broken. So time goes on, and people struggle, and God decides that he's going to take one man in his family named Abraham. And he's going to take Abraham, and he's going to set Abraham and his family apart from the rest of the world to begin redeveloping this relationship that he's supposed to have, that he created humanity to have. He's going to start with Abraham. And he starts with Abraham and his descendants, and he makes a promise to Abraham, a covenant. Okay, a covenant is an agreement, or we would use the word testament. So the Old Testament in the Bible is the old covenant, the old agreement. The New Testament is the new covenant, the new agreement. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to bless you, and you are going to be a blessing to the entire world. I'm going to multiply your descendants like sand on the seashore, like stars in the sky. And I'm going to give you this land that I promised to you. It's called the promised land, right? And God makes this covenant with Abraham, but it is a one-way covenant. Abraham doesn't have to do anything to be in this relationship with God. God gives this relationship and this promise to Abraham as a gift of grace that Abraham doesn't have to do a single thing to start or to maintain. God starts it. God maintains it because he made the covenant with Abraham. Okay, so Abraham's family grows. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, on to Joseph. Eventually, they're learning how to love God, and they're making mistakes along the way, but they're learning how to follow him and be in a relationship with him. And eventually, they find themselves somewhere, obviously, no one wants to be. They're in, well, not Egypt. Egypt's a fine place. But uh, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt, okay? Um, 
actually, you know, just on, the, on a side note, the other day my wife put a post up on Facebook and asked if anybody out there uh, ate peanuts, shells and all. Did anybody see that post? And she said, A, you know, A, if you shell your peanuts and then eat the inside, B, if you eat the entire peanut, the shell and everything. And the reason that started, by the way, is because I, um, I eat the shell and everything. Like, I eat the whole thing, okay? And she was like, that's weird. I'm like, that's not weird. Tons of people do that. And she's like, no, tons of people do not do that. Um, and so she put the post up on Facebook. And so there were, like, hundreds of comments. Apparently, everybody shells their peanuts except for me. All right, but there was one, the point I'm making is there was one other B, B person. There was one other person who eats the peanut shells and all. It's my buddy Sammy. Sammy's, Sammy's from Egypt. So I'm just saying I've got something close with Egypt. I don't want to talk poorly about Egypt. Obviously, there's some sort of kindred spirit between me, Egypt, and eating peanuts, shell, and all. But nevertheless, so it's not just that they're in Egypt. That's not the problem. The problem is that they're enslaved in Egypt. It didn't start out that way, but it grew into that. And so they find themselves in that position, and uh, God raises up a leader named Moses, and through Moses, he leads them out of slavery in Egypt. You've got all the plagues, and you've got Pharaoh, and the let my people go, and all of that. They come out, and they go through the Red Sea. There's that whole thing with the waters parting. Eventually, God's people find themselves in the desert getting ready to start a brand new life, essentially. And God decides that he wants to give them a code or a law so that they can learn who he is and what he expects of them. He's like a child being trained, and he's drawing them into a relationship with them. And so God makes a covenant, a second covenant. This one is with Moses. So the first covenant we call with Abraham, we call the Abrahamic covenant. This is a covenant with, through Moses, and it's the Mosaic covenant. Okay, So that doesn't mean like pretty tiles in a pattern on a wall, okay? It's, it's because of Moses. So the covenant is made through Moses. And this covenant is God saying, okay, you're in a relationship with me. You know the, old co- you know the, the Abrahamic covenant, all right? But now I want you to understand how to walk with me. I want you to understand how to honor me. I want you to understand how to love me and how for your life to look like I want your life to look like. And so he gives them the law, which is the Ten Commandments. There's commandments about keeping the Sabbath. They're supposed to keep the Sabbath. Uh, the, you know, obviously the famous ones, do not murder and do not steal and, and have no other gods before me is, is the, the key one. And uh, he gives them all kinds of other laws, too, about what they're supposed to eat or what they're not supposed to eat. Uh, there are uh, rules about how they're supposed to wash their hands and how they're supposed to pray and how they're supposed to offer sacrifices for their sins and all of these kinds of things. All of these rules, this whole system, really a religious system that God gives to them so that they can honor him. But this is a conditional covenant, unlike the first one. This is a two-way street. They have to do their part in order to receive the blessing from God Uh, in that covenant in order for God to be blessing them and moving them forward. And then you see them go on this whole journey of oscillating. They're just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between honoring God and failing and honoring God and failing. And he's constantly picking them back up and forgiving them and giving them another chance. But they're going back and forth inside of this agreement. And it would be easy based on our understanding of religion, and, and it grew into this as well, even in Jesus' day, to twist and look, start looking at the law incorrectly and to think that what God said to them was keep this law to the letter and you will be saved. Break this law and you won't. That's the way most people think about religion. And that's what a lot of people had done with the law. 
And so even the religious leaders, what that does when you allow pride to sneak into something like that, the religious leaders were keeping all of these rules, at least at face value they were, and then they were self-righteously looking down at everyone else and being like, I keep the law and you don't. I'm worth something in your dirt. I'm in and you're out. And it was a total misunderstanding of what was going on. And a lot of the readings that we, that, or the, the writings that we have in the New Testament are trying to get people's minds straight about this idea, not only to understand what God was doing in the Old Testament, but what God was doing in a New Testament, a new covenant, a new agreement through Jesus. The, see, the Old Testament, the laws and the rules that they had to follow were, they're often called in Scripture, a shadow of what's coming. They were getting people ready and prepared. I mean, they had to go and they had to offer goats and bulls and rams and all of this stuff as sacrifices. But the reality is no amount of bulls or goats or rams could overcome the sin that the people had, nor could any amount of keeping the Sabbath or the feasts or the the holy days or anything like that. And part of the role of the law was to show people they couldn't possibly keep it. Yet you had all these religious leaders who thought that they had and thought that they could. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he needs to start breaking that mentality in people which is why a lot of the conflict happens with the Pharisees. And then as the church, after Jesus dies on the cross, paying for our sins is the final and perfect sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice, and he rises again on the third day and then returns to heaven, now the apostles and everybody are trying to figure out what do we do with this? How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to behave? I mean, you might look back at Abraham, for example, and be like, well, how was Abraham saved? Well, obviously Abraham was saved by keeping all the rules, right? No, he wasn't. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4, and and he says, What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Meaning, was he justified? Justified as being made right before God. Was he justified by what he did, by his actions? Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. (laughs) So yeah, he could brag that he kept all the rules or did whatever, but he's not bragging in front of God. It's nothing compared to to God, the goodness and the glory of God. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Not his works, not his actions, his belief is what made him righteous. Verse 4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Abraham did some incredible things. Moses did some incredible things. King David did some incredible things. The prophet Jeremiah did some incredible things. But their incredible things that they did could never save them. It was their belief that saved them. Same then as it is now. Except our belief is in Jesus Christ. That that phrase in there is... It always kind of caught me, I guess, verse 4, where it says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. It's kind of an odd concept, at least at surface level. But I was thinking about that this week. And well, I was thinking about it because um, I hired my kids as cheap labor. Um, and I did that this week, unashamedly. Child labor is part of parenting. It shouldn't be part of, like, the world as a whole, but it's definitely part of parenting. And um, I had a bunch of sticks, okay? We got a tree in our backyard that sheds sticks like a dog sheds fur, I'm telling you. And it just drops them constantly. We can't keep up with it. And so we've just started piling them into these huge piles of sticks 
that it became very unsightly. And I just got the feeling, I think it was Wednesday, I was like, we're going to clean these sticks. You know, Wednesday's the day I take off. And so I try to, I work physically, you know, on, on Wednesday. And that, that's good for me because I work with my mind most other days. And so, you know, good physical labor on Wednesday. But I was like, I really don't want to pick up all these sticks. I really don't. And um, I had a burn pile going. I was going to toss all these on the burn pile. So I was like, yeah, you know who would be great at picking up sticks? Little hands. My kids. That'd be great. And I got three of them in there. And so uh, Jairus, middle son, came out to, to check out what was going on. He's like, what you doing, Dad? I was like, glad you're here. <laughs> you want to make 10 bucks? <laughs> he, the eyes lit up. Yes, I want to make 10 bucks. Might as well be a million. I'd love to make 10 bucks. Great. I was like, go inside, ask your brother and sister if they want to make 10 bucks. And sure enough, all three of them come coming out, right? Am I right, guys? You're in the back row. I see you. Coming out, right? They're, they're trotting out. Right? They're all excited. They're going to make 10 bucks. They're like, what are we going to do? I'm like, you're going to pick up all these sticks. And they're like, next to the creepy shed? I was like, yes, the sticks next to the creepy shed. I was like, hang on a minute. And so I went over to the piles of sticks, and I just started moving them around with a rake first just to make sure, like, I wanted to move the sticks and make sure that none of the sticks moved on their own. You know what I mean? And uh, make sure the kids are safe. We did uncover a little bunny den, so that was, that was interesting while we were doing it. But anyway, I was like, it's safe, no snakes. And um, so I set the kids to picking up the sticks. And they did a great job, by the way. They did a great job. They cleaned it all up. They didn't complain at all. They worked hard for three hours. Hey, $3.33 an hour. That's like, you know, that, that's low overhead. I like that. So anyway, they did a great job. They did a great job. But by the time we got done with the sticks... Right? I'd made an agreement with them. You pick, you pick up the sticks, and I'll pay you $10. Right? So let's read this verse again. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So because we had a contractual agreement with each other, you do this and I'll do this, that I was, after the kids did the work, in their debt. I owed them. And so they're going to come to me and be like, hey, Dad, where's my $10? I did the work. You said you were going to pay me $10. Where's my $10? And then two weeks later, after I forgot to give them the $10, which I would inevitably do, they would come back to me and they would be like, hey, Dad, you still owe me $10. I'm like, I don't like being in debt to my kids. You know, this is not a good, this is not a good setup. But this is the way a lot of people approach religion or approach faith. They, they think that it's a list of rules and that they keep the rules, then God is going to give whatever he's going to give. And so we end up doing things either out of obligation or to trying to put God in our debt. Well, God, you owe me. I serve in the children's ministry every single week at church, so God, you owe me. Or God, I tithe, I give money, I, I support these organizations or whatever, so God, you owe me. And it puts us, it makes our relationship more like an employee and a boss than like a father and a son. We, we aren't in, a, in that kind of agreement with God. We aren't in that kind of agreement with God. Um, just so you know that I'm not like a Scrooge or anything, I, I did go back to my kids realizing that $10 for three hours of hard manual labor probably wasn't fair. And so I went back to him and I said, you know what? You guys worked so hard and your attitude was so good. I want to pay all of you $20 instead of 10 And they were like, oh, thank you so much. You know, they were so, they were so thankful for that. They weren't acting entitled or like I owed it to them or anything. Why? Because the extra $10 was grace. Because they weren't expecting it. 
This is the difference. This, and that's not a perfect example, but it's close. What we're trying to do is get our minds set right because we aren't saved by the work that we do. We aren't saved by going to church. We aren't saved by being nice to people. We aren't saved by giving money away. We aren't saved by being careful about not swearing or whatever else. We aren't saved by our actions or our works. We're saved only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He paid for our sins on the cross, all of them, past, present, future. He paid for our sins on the cross. And if we put our faith in him and believe that he paid for our sins on the cross and that he rose again, we are saved. We're saved. And we're not sitting under rules anymore that are dictating whether we're saved or not. We're saved through Jesus Christ and his grace. We are not saved through our works. So what do we do then with the rules? What do we do with the law in the Old Testament? Do we just pitch it? Do we, do we intentionally not do it? <laughs> what do we do with all this stuff when Paul's talking about what sin is in the New Testament? This is sin and this is not sin and all. What do we do with all that if, we, if it's not a rules thing? Well, we understand that it's not salvation we're talking about. It's spiritual maturity and growth that we're talking about. But what are we supposed to do or not do? What is the list? What are the rules? What is the scorecard? We want to know. <laughs> They were really struggling with this, particularly right after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And they've got the church going, and the apostles are leading, and the elders are leading, and they're trying to figure this whole thing out. How do we live now? Because most of the people in the church, which was centered in Jerusalem to begin with, most of the people in the church were people that were Jewish by heritage, and they'd been Jews their entire life. They've been keeping the law their entire life. So what do we do? Do we keep on doing this, or do we not do this? What, are we, can we work on the Sabbath or don't we work on the Sabbath? Do we eat pork or don't we eat pork? You know, these are, these are important questions for them to figure out. And stack on top of that the fact that now it's been revealed to them that the good news, the gospel, is not just for the Jewish people, but now it's for everyone, Gentiles and Jews alike, which is great news for us, by the way, because I would imagine that the majority of people in this room, myself included, wouldn't be categorized as Jewish by heritage, I'm a Gentile, so it's good news that, that it's available to all of us because it means it's available to me and to you too. But now they got these churches that have Gentiles in it who haven't practiced the law. They didn't, they've never kept the Sabbath. They, in fact, they're used to going to these parties and these feasts and things where people are offering sacrifices to pagan gods, and there's all kinds of things going on. So now these people are in the church. What are we supposed to do? Do we have to make them do all the stuff we've been doing? Do they, are they under the law too? Do they have to keep the Sabbath? Do they have to eat the way we eat? Do they have to wash their hands? Do they have to go to the temple and pray three times a day? What are they supposed to do? This is a real problem. You know, the, um, the apostles continued, as far as I can tell, to con they continued to keep the law, even after knowing that their faith in Jesus had saved them and what he'd done on the cross. I mean, it tells us in Acts they continued to go to the temple and pray three times a day. This was their lifestyle. It's what they were used to. It's what they did. So now what do we do? We got all these Gentiles coming in. It was such a big problem that they actually gathered all the church leaders together in Jerusalem and had something we call the Jerusalem Council that you can read about in, in uh, Acts chapter 15. They gathered everyone together, and there was a huge uproar because there were people that were going to the Gentile church and saying, you guys got to keep the law. In particular, they were telling them, you got to get circumcised. Yikes, you know, that's part of the law. And they're, they're struggling with that, going, what are we supposed to do? You know, are we, is that what we're supposed to be teaching them or not? So they have this big council. All the leaders get together, and it's so chaotic. They're like, hey, listen, we're just going, we're going to go into closed session, okay? Like a school board or something. Like, we're going to go into closed session. We're going to talk about this amongst ourselves. And when we come back out, we'll let you know what we think is best. 
So they do. They go into closed session. And we don't know exactly what was said in there. It's not recorded, although you can kind of read between the lines on what some of their conversation must have been. Because they're saying, well, are they under the law? Or are they not under the law? They come out of that session and they make it. Peter makes a declaration. Peter's the leader of the church in Jerusalem at that time. He comes out and he says, we should not make it hard. We have we have, we've affirmed we should not make it hard for Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. So they do not have to keep the law. Now, you can read between the lines a little bit in the conversation they were having because they say, he says, no, they don't have to keep the law, but we're going to write to them and tell them to watch out for these things in particular, <laughs> which isn't a new law. It's just some things he knows concerned about. Because I would imagine in the closed session, the discussion was, hey, we can't just tell these Gentiles that they're free from the law because they're going to think they can do whatever they want. And, you know, they go to these feasts and things where they, they strangle animals, where they kill animals, where they drink the blood of these animals to, to worship these pagan gods. They eat the meat that's been sacrificed to the idols. There's all kinds of immorality that happens surrounding that. So, like, we at least need to give them a heads up on that, that they need to stay away from that stuff. And they're like, okay. So that's the message that comes out of that council. And they write a letter to these churches. And I want to read the letter to you. It's in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, uh, verse 23. They wrote this letter to them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law. To whom we gave no such commandment, it seems good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas, not that Judas, a different Judas, okay? Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Yeah, you chuckle at that. It's like, it's the simplest thing. It's the simplest letter. No, you don't have to do all of that stuff. But hey, keep your eye out on these things. This is not going to be good for you. If you if stay away from these things, stay away from these things, it will go well with you. It's just such a freeing message. It's a freeing message. You do not have to keep the law, but watch out for this stuff. And the natural reaction is, well, what do we do with the law then? What, what do we do with all of the rules? I mean, the apostles, apparently, they continue to keep the law as far as we can tell. There's even this whole thing, there's this whole thing where a uh, sheet comes down, Peter has a vision, and he sees the sheet come down out of heaven, and on it are animals that he's not supposed to eat, and God says to him, Peter, take, kill, and eat, um, and Peter's like, can't do that, you know that's unclean, and God says, no, no, don't call unclean what I've called clean, right, and that, that happens three times, because Peter needs things to happen three times in order to get through his thick skull, that, 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 that continues, uh, it's a pattern, and um, so uh, it happens three times, and, um, and eventually Peter, you know, agrees with God and does what God asked him to do. He said, well, that, well, that meant that, that Peter started eating pork. Not necessarily, <laughs> not necessarily, because that wasn't about eating or not eating. That was, that whole thing, that whole vision was about the, the Gentiles. 
And in, in that analogy, the Gentiles were the thing that Peter was calling unclean that God had called clean. So he was encouraging him to accept Gentiles into the church. That's what that was all about. But presumably, Peter may have continued to eat the same way he had always eaten before. But the question is, why? Why would you do these things or not do these things? Paul, when he's talking about the law um, and Romans, by the way, Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7 goes into great detail on this. And it, it's a very interesting study. We just don't have time to go through it today. But um, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, but now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Follow in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Because, you know, what do we do with the law then? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So we're getting a picture of what the role that, that the law plays in our life even now. To know that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's it. But that to walk with God, to be faithful to God, we look at His law, we look at His instructions, we look at His character, and we learn through the Spirit how we are supposed to walk in a way that will honor and glorify God. The Spirit, which we now have, instructs us and uses the law to teach us. We learn about the character of God, the nature of God. We learn about what brings Him glory and what doesn't bring Him glory. We learn about what He's us and what he hasn't designed us for. And we allow the spirit to lead us as we learn from that. So it's a little bit, if you think about the Abrahamic covenant being God's one-sided promise to, to the nation of Israel for salvation, for faith, then Christ's gift for us is that gift, that gracious gift to us. And then if you think about the Mosaic Covenant and the law as guidance for them on how they walk with God and honor God and how to be in fellowship with Him, God has now given us the Spirit to understand how we walk in fellowship with Him, how we stay close to God, how we honor God, how we glorify Him with our life. And He'll use the law, He'll use the Scripture in order to do that. And so we have to get really, really good at listening to Him. So that while we walk and while we do these things, we don't do them because we're under the law out of fear. We don't do them because we have to. We don't change the way that we live or the way that we speak or the way that we spend our time or our practices or habits. We don't change them because we have to, because we're commanded to, because we're forced to in order to secure our salvation. We do them because we want to. We do them because we love God and we're so thankful for the grace that he's given to us. We do them because we want our life to bring him honor and glory, because we want to become as much like Jesus as we possibly can. And the Spirit leads us and helps us and shows us how to do that. And so each week in the series of giving a phrase, what we're set free from and what we're set free to. And today what we need to know is that we've been set free from works-based religion and set free to a Spirit-led relationship. We've been set free from works-based religion, set free to a spirit-led relationship. This is a mental shift that happens. I don't, I don't 
obey a list of rules because I have to. I honor God with my life. I don't obey a list of rules because I have no choice. I honor God with my life because I do have a choice. It's a total different mentality. And it's a little scary. It's a little scary to, to believe that and know that. Because the question is like, what do we do with sin? You know, what is sin or what isn't sin? Next week's going to be all about that. Next week is free from sin, and we're going to talk about how that all works. But what is sin and what isn't sin? Because the Bible definitely lists out a ton of sins. And there are things that we know are outside of God's character always, and the Spirit is not going to contradict himself and tell us something different. So, you know, you look at something like the Ten Commandments and murder. You're like, well, well, if we're not under the law, is murder okay now? No, of course not. In fact, through the Spirit, we're called to an even higher level than that. Right? Of course it is. That's outside of God's desire and will. So there's, of course, that, that still stands. But it's a shift in what we do and how we look at it and how we live and how we look at each other, too. Because a lot of people will use Scripture, will use the law, and this is what the Pharisees were guilty of, hand over fist. They would use the law to compare themselves to other people. And they would say, well, we know this and this is what we do and you don't do that, so we're better than you are. Maybe not explicitly, but that certainly was the tone of their life. And Jesus called them out all the time for being hypocrites for that reason. So we've got to talk about what to do with that and how we handle all of that. But Jeremiah saw this coming. The prophet Jeremiah, long before Jesus showed up, God spoke through Jeremiah. And I'm just going to paraphrase this, but, but he said in Jeremiah 31, the day's coming, this is God speaking through the prophet, the day is coming when I will make a new agreement, I'll make a new covenant. Not like the one that I made with Moses, because they weren't able to keep it. But in this new agreement, I will put my law in their minds, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's the next, it's the next step in God's relationship with us. For him to give us the spirit and, and maybe the, the most important skill or most important thing for a Christian to develop is the ability to listen to, hear, and respond to the Holy Spirit. And to hear what he says to you, hear what he says through the scripture to you when he highlights a scripture or shows you how to apply it to yourself, right? To be able to listen to the spirit so that we can be confident that we're living a life that God is honored by. And that we don't put ourselves on a self-righteous pedestal and judge other people as less or worse because they're not doing the things that we're doing. What are we supposed to do with these rules in the law? Well, look at them, learn them, understand them. Look at the, the, the principle or the character of God that sits behind the rule. This is what Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about it next week. It's basically what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, you guys are worried about the rule. You need to look at what's behind the rule. The character and the nature of God and what He's designed you for. And that's what you need to live by. And you need to listen to the Spirit on what you need to do or not do. You know, I know Christians who, who observe the Sabbath religiously, like hardcore about it. And that's great. That's great. As long as it, you, they're doing it in the freedom that they have to do it, not because they feel like they have to, but to do it in freedom as an expression of worship and honor and trust in God, which is what the Sabbath was designed for in the first place. So if you feel like you need, to, uh, you need to keep the Sabbath like to the letter, to the T, and you honor God and worship God through that, do it. And don't let anybody tell you you're wrong. 
But also don't tell someone who doesn't feel convicted to keep the Sabbath by the Spirit. Don't tell them they're wrong. We need to listen to him and pursue him and ask him what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live. Jesus has to talk about this all the time. In fact, there's a couple times where Jesus broke the Sabbath. And boy, the religious people weren't very happy about that. And Jesus is like, there's something bigger going on here that you need to pay attention to. And so we just need to commit ourselves to honoring God with our life and listening to the Spirit as he leads us through the Scripture and in our life and how we're supposed to honor and glorify God to the greatest extent that we can. And that's all I want to challenge you to do today is to put on that mentality. And like I said, we're going to talk about sin and the implications of all that next week. But I want you to put on that mentality this week and realize you don't have that weight of rules and all that sitting on your shoulders. You're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That has been Paul said that it's been nailed to the cross, he says elsewhere. It's been elsewhere. The law has been nailed to the cross. That's been nailed to the cross with your sin. And you have freedom. Now, how are you going to use that freedom? Are you going to use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, or are you going to use that freedom as an opportunity for the Spirit to listen to Him, to let Him guide you, to draw you into the life that God created you to live so you can walk in openness? And so I want to go to the Lord in prayer right now together, and I'm going to pray and ask Him to... to Bring this home in our hearts and show us how each one of us needs to take this and apply this for our lives. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and recognize that you are good, that you are loving, that you are compassionate, you are kind, you are gracious. And the salvation that you've given to us through Jesus Christ is not by anything that we've done. It's not by our work. We haven't earned it. Not the best person on the earth could earn what you've given to us freely by grace through your son, Jesus. And that's salvation. Thank you for your word that you've given to us to show us what you, what's important to you, what's in your will and what's not, what's honoring to you and what's not. And Lord, we want you to teach us through the spirit that we have. We want to we learn what you've designed us for, how you want us to live, what you want us to embrace and what you want us to stay away from. Not because it's earning anything as far as salvation goes, but because we simply want to honor you and glorify you. We want our lives to reflect what you designed us for. We want to be in the relationship that you created us for in the first place. And so I pray, God, that you would restore us and you would you would heal us and you would direct us that through the Spirit, you would guide us and teach us. Humble our hearts to hear. Give us clarity. Maybe, in the, maybe right now, right now you would speak to us through the Spirit. Somebody in the room would hear very clearly. Very clearly that, that there's something going on where they haven't been honoring and glorifying you. And you want them to change. You want them to grow. You want them to move forward in a life that honors you. I pray, God, you would show us that anywhere you need to. And that you would show us then what we need to do to bring you honor and glory in our life. To worship you. To express our love for you. To express our gratitude for what you've given us so freely so that we can live in freedom, free of the weight. 
We love you, God, and we thank you. And we just ask that you bless us with direction and guidance. Not for our glory, 100%, God, for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.